Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, a cube appeared in front of my house today and tried to give me a lot of series of tests, so that was very stressful. Well, that's not really the way that we want to kick off a podcast full of stress, but it does mean that we are going to have to talk about the Carbamite maneuver this week. And as always, we are not doing it alone. So this is very much a when worlds collide situation. So um, say hello, Andrew. Hello. Hello. What a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you. Um, for those that don't know, Andrew is the uh, co-host uh, of our Beatles uh, podcast, Beatles Stuffology, and he has uh, deigned to cross boundaries across space and time, in fact, I would say, to join us for our uh, Star Trek podcast. So um, I'm, I hope you're looking forward to it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Okay, that's the sincerity and enthusiasm that I've come to expect. Well, it's always a pleasure to spend time talking to you. Well, How about that? that? That'll do just nicely. <laughs> um, to kick the whether it's true or not, it's a separate matter, but I'll take the win. Um, so, um, as we always do at the top of the show, we uh, ask our guest of the week to tell us a little bit about their history with uh, Star Trek, if indeed there is any. So, what's your history with the show? Well, JG, we're a similar age, so I suspect that our experiences are fairly similar. BBC Two, I think maybe Thursdays, about six o'clock. Um, it would it would be on. We're talking about like early mid 1980s here. So um, I didn't have any conception at the time that it was a program that was made, you know, in the mid to late 60s. It was just it was just something that, that that was on, like you know, summertime special and EastEnders, you know, for example. And I can remember sitting around the the dinner table, um, watching episodes of it. And actually, it, it's quite long, isn't it? I mean, for, for something for a, for a kid to be watching, um, it's it's quite long. We're talking nearly an hour per episode, aren't we? And 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 I think I had memories of it being okay, but a bit talky. But then Wrath of Khan. I mean, you know, I just have to say Wrath of Khan, um, which I remember for two reasons. One, because actually it's genuinely quite scary in a couple of places for a little kid and two because it's one of the, the only occasions i've ever been in a cinema where um they actually where this the the reel broke um and they actually <laughs> had and and so everything stops so you're sitting in there for about 15 20 minutes um but you know it was worth the wait uh, apart from that um yeah i i kind of lost touch with I, i'm never a massive fan um, but I kind of lost touch with any of that as, as I, you know, sort of went through the teens. Um, and I suppose never really went back to it, dip in and out of some of the latest series. But, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that's there, isn't it? It's in the background. And as long as people are having fun with it, that's not a problem. Sort of kind of feel the same way about Doctor Who, which I know will please you enormously. Um, it's nice that it exists in its various forms, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to jump into it. Fair enough. Can't argue with that. Um, as, you, as you're as you aware, that's not exactly my, my relationship with the show. Um, yeah, but then, but then that's part of the point, because um, for those people that don't know, uh, G and I were at, at university college that's not called it university uh, it's a university now <laughs> that's true that's true uh, G had the book the videos 
um, the some practicing on Betamax as well. Actually, yeah, 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 Fred. So, um, you know, there there were all kinds of things going on um, in his very interesting book collection that were related to to science fiction. And I think maybe the fact that that you were so engaged with it is it was great because it means I don't have to be. Good. Well, that's worked out well for you, I have to say. And uh, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, but I've got notes. I mean, I've got made more notes on this than I've made on every single Beatles song put together that we've, we've talked about on that podcast. Oh. So, um, yeah, you might not like some of them, though. <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> just, just to warn you, in particular, I've got quite a lot of notes on corridors and the weirdest countdown from 10 minutes um, to destruction you've ever come across in anything ever. Well, there are a lot of corridors, so I can't, I can't really, can't really disagree with that. Uh, excellent. Um, thank you very much. Um, and so on to our usual summary, Kev, if you'd be so kind. All right. Uh, yeah, the Corbett maneuver involves, as I alluded to in my opening joke, a cube landing in front of the Enterprise, and they can't get around it. Um, after trying to, uh, they eventually are forced to destroy the cube. An alien named Balak shows up and says this was a test and you failed by destroying the cube and therefore you must be destroyed as well uh after more tension the aforementioned unusual countdown uh kirk decides to bluff with the titular maneuver pretending the enterprise is made out of corbamite which will reflect any blast back on its attacker um there is then balak tries to parlay with them the enterprise escapes a tractor beam uh through a maneuver a different maneuver um, but then that leaves Balak's ship injured. So Kirk and his crew go to investigate and lend help. And that impresses Balak, who is not the very puppety looking alien that appeared on the screen, but is instead a very intelligent and overdubbed Clint Howard. Uh, young Clint Howard, <laughs> we'll definitely get into. But yes, is this child looking like figure who speaks very intelligently. Um, throughout all of this is a subplot of Kirk uh, giving one of his crew the uh, never-before-seen and never-seen-again Lieutenant Bailey burnout, and instead of quiet quitting, Bailey goes off with Balak to teach him about the human race. Which is nice. Lovely. Thank you very yeah. much. Um, yeah, so that's that's the Carbonite maneuver. So, um, yeah, it's, its general reputation is very high amongst Star Trek fans, so I guess one of the initial questions is going to be whether it's... Uh, whether it lives up to that, but uh, Andrew, since you're our, our guest this time out, um, sort of general impressions. How how did you find this one? Oh, look, I mean, it it it's quite easy, isn't it, to um, to mock something that was made in was it sixty seven, and and to you know, yeah. you, you will know from from our conversations, JG, on, on the Beatles podcast that some of the the, the earlier rough songs, you know, if you judge them by today's standards, then you, you kind of miss some of the, the charm. Um, and so, you know, although I, I will mention corridors and that 10 minute countdown, um, you know, I, I have tried my best to sort of go back and think, actually, well, what kind of impact would it had at the time? And and in, in doing that, I was also thinking about the fact I don't know much about science fiction films of the, the mid 1960s because I, I want to have something to judge it against because it's, it's very easy to say, oh, the special effects are a bit rubbish or, oh, it's an episode where they're in the spaceship um and that's fine so you know it makes it nice and cheap but then actually if you look at a lot of the science fiction films of the of the, the mid to early 60s they weren't doing anything as ambitious as this and i can't believe those mm. words just came out of my mouth <laughs> it's an ambitious thing to do even if 
there are you know massive holes all over the place um so you know it, it's nice isn't it that, that human beings are are wonderful creatures who only have the best interests of everybody else and they will come to your aid if there's a problem and we take photographs of, of outer space and we're just mapping and we're just meeting strange new creatures and we'll help them when they're in distress um you know nice messages and you know it's 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 fine. I mean, I say that a lot with the Beatles, don't I? The, the album, it's fine. It's fine. And I'm, I'm chomping at the pit to um, uh, to say a bunch of other stuff. But I tell you what, actually, there's there's um, um I, I'll go a slightly different direction. Um, the director of this episode is the director of of actually a real one, re- one one really terrible film, but one real well probably more really terrible films, but one really great film in the taking of Pelham One Two Three with Walter Matthau. Oh which is a fantastic film and you can see a couple of flourishes um in particularly in the early part yeah in fact right at the start when you you know you have um, um a high angle um of of spock and then the camera pulls back to an even higher position looking down them it's quite a you know an, an interesting shot and then it, it um, angles slightly and goes down over um, um bailey and the console desk and then zooms in on him as he presses a button but actually it's a really interesting shot it's interestingly done and there's another one a little later on when um when kirk comes onto the bridge and the camera is about three feet behind him and it's it's almost handheld it's a little bit shaky it's like you know paul greengrass eat your heart out and it's kind of following him in as he comes onto the bridge and you thought you don't see an awful lot of stuff like that so you know clearly this director has been responsible for some interesting work and jaws four <laughs> well, you know, you you can't win them all, right? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, Joseph Sargent is the name of this person. And I, I meant to look him up because I noticed a lot of those shots as well. It's an incredibly well-directed episode. It's interesting how it sort of flits between shots like that and then some very standard, um, you know, two shots, reverse shots. Um, you know, so it's interesting. I wonder if he was just trying to throw something in that uh, was a little bit different, a little bit artier, but not having seen episode or for many years, seen episodes that surround it. I don't know whether or not it was something other directors were, were trying um, at the time as well. Um, you know, but all of that artiness didn't stop him missing, um, you know, the odd continuity error. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, let's not get picky just yet. I'll, I'll save my fun. I've said nice things. You have, and I'm very impressed by you. Well done. <laughs> um, Kev, how, well did you, how did you find the episode overall, Kev? Yeah, I mean, I, I love this one. I think, I mean, sort of picking up what Andrew was saying, if you meet this episode, if you meet Star Trek where it is, and that just you have to buy into a lot of age, a lot of ambition, a lot of whatever, I think, I guess I do have the slightly longer measuring stick of this is the 10th episode I've seen as opposed to the first in years, it sounds like. So I can stack it up against the ones we've seen and be oh this is a really well done one um the the writing is i think spectacular i think uh i just the way it builds tension is so fantastic and i think the character work it this is our first episode where i think we have the entire crew um without anyone without any scotty or uhura or sulu casually missing and i think that really shows that you have the dynamics starting to form and everyone is, has a little thing to do and just a lot of like great lines here and there. But then also just like conceptually, it's a really great story. 
just it's all a battle of wits. And I think we have let's see, the writer is a Jerry's soul. And I think he and Sargent really work together to build this sort of tension and verve off of nothing more than I mean, people sitting in a bridge and talking at screens. It's really impressive, I think. So I can I, I, I just um drill a bit further down on that and say, yeah. okay, Scotty and Ahura, they, they don't really need to be there. They're 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 kind of superfluous this. But the strength of it, again, I can't believe I'm saying this, um, are the the conversations that Kirk has with Spock and that Kirk has with McCoy. Those are the bits that really right. work for me. There's 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 humor in those two um in, in those two pairings. Um you get a sense that all three of them can actually act you know when they're doing that i think when it goes to the you know the, the wider shots and it's involving the other characters and and the conversations are are shorter and more about just here's some exposition i think that's when it kind of loses its way but you put those characters together and and actually you think that they really do um know each other that there's there's some tension between them but there's also some friendship and there's some development and support and actually i was surprised by how much I bought into the conversations that they had. I think one of the things that it's worth mentioning at this stage is that um, we've been covering these episodes in uh, broadcast order rather than in production order. So as Kev said, this is the 10th episode that we've covered. But this was originally slated as the second episode. That's what it was meant to be. So um, I think it's even more impressive that they've been Mm -hmm. able to build that kind of rapport between the characters, given that this is so early on in the run. And there's a couple of scenes, uh, particularly that one of um, McCoy and Kirk, where they're in the turbo lift and, and McCoy is kind of giving... Uh, Kirk a hard time because he thinks Bailey's you know been over promoted and he's stressed out and all the rest of it and 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 Kirk tries to like make a joke and get McCoy on side and McCoy mm. does not buy it he he really puts Kirk in his place and he won't fall for the Joker or the the kind of chumminess of it and it's a really it's a lovely little scene because it 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 really it really helps to have mccoy there as that kind of like no he's going to be professional about this this is important it's not a time to be just be laughing with your mates about someone or whatever and and he really puts kirk kind of on the back foot and you can see the way that shatner reacts to it and and he's surprisingly he's surprisingly good at doing that and it's it's those kind of moments but they're very naturalistic beats they feel like you say uh andrew they feel like characters who have known each other for ages and this is how they interact and to pull that off in what is essentially your second episode is is really something and it's it's actually a better line um just before that when uh, um, i think if if i've got the the position of your bit just right um when um they're um McCoy and Kirk are having a drink in in Kirk's quarters, and they're they're monitoring the the retest of the the weapons, blah 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 blah, um, whatever it is that's going to throw Bailey off his game even more. Um, and they talked about the fact that we're ninety four percent successful. Let's go again till we get a hundred. And and McCoy actually says, um, "What are you going to do with that six percent when they give it to you?" And I thought, nice, like that. That's that, yeah. that's really sharp. It's fascinating that the character of McCoy did not exist before this episode. Like DeForest, this is DeForest Kelly's, I guess, first time stepping into the role from a production perspective. And yeah, it's he is so locked in. It's insane. And like also you, you have the other great scene between them where 
McCoy says he's not going to bluff. He's going to put on Baylor's medical record that if this is Kirk's fault, that he is kind of cracking mm. a bit. And that that's just such a tense scene. And Kelly brings it full force onto Shatner. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's remarkable. I think it's no secret of this podcast that uh, Kelly slash McCoy is like one of your favorite characters, JG. He's becoming mine as well. I think this is a McCoy fandom podcast. Uh, it's turning into one first and foremost, and it's easy to see why he's incredible. Um, I respond to that if you want to, JG, but also we need to get your opinion of the episode overall as well. Oh, yeah, it's great. Uh, I really like it. Um, I think it does. Uh, it's. I mean, I'm really only going to echo what both of you have said, but it, it's amazing that they can wring so much tension out of people sitting about. Um, and it's the characters that make it resonate. It's, it's that feeling that this is actually a crew who have spent time together, who have sort of lived together, who have, you know, experiences and jokes and little moments together. And that's what that's what really makes it work. And I also... I really appreciate the fact that it's not like a, like a baffle gab ending. They don't just invent something mm -hmm. to fix the problem or they don't just kind of wave a magic wand and suddenly technology has fixed everything. I admire the fact that the resolution comes from a bluff, from, from somebody being outthought. Right. It's, I think it's fair to say that once that's happened, once the countdown is over, the air does slightly go out of the episode. I mean, that's uh, you know we have the we have the stuff mm. the, the little pilot ship and all the rest of it, and it's all fine. But I don't know that it uh, I don't know that it's ever got a moment that comes back from that. And that that like that McCoy scene that uh, you know the way that um, Kirk it sort of loses his rag and shouts at him the day that you can bluff me, Doctor, and then. Uh, pulls back and then he then he's got the solution it's 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 so nice to see kirk written that way that he can mm -hmm. he can be smart enough to work something out and he does and it works and that's great but that's also kind of it doesn't give the episode a lot of places to go um and the rest of it's fine i don't want to say that it's not but it's kind of like the episode is kind of done at that point uh, and everything else is marking time i like the twist of, of of the puppet actually being a puppet i think that's really good writing as well yeah um and and i i, I like the i like uh you know all of the stuff in uh the little ship I, I like the fact that the set is designed really small because that's what that's you know like clint howard's obviously a child playing uh you know a, an alien or whatever but i like the fact that they've bothered to put enough thought into it that the the arc the internal architecture of the ship reflects the person in it rather than just like normal people or whatever so that's you know good attention to detail so all that stuff is great um yeah overall i just really enjoy it i think it's I think it's very very good watch i think baylock is where i want to go next in this discussion i love this character a lot <laughs> um i think i mean obviously it's just a good starting point of we have judged your species and we through like a some crap test and we feel like you need to destroy it i mean that's just like yeah it gets you there it's locks you in and then the the extra layer of these were tests inside tests and bluffs inside bluffs just to sort of feel you out i like that a lot i love the look of the puppet and i love the look of clint howard a lot just like two very distinct ideas and one revealing to be the other is such a fun twist and just the whole aesthetic of clint howard giving a great physical performance for how old was he it looks like 10 uh yeah i had a oh no not even he was like seven looking like um if he's born in 59 so yeah he was he's like doing a great job 
mimicking and then both the voice of Ted Cassidy, again, uh, alert from Adam's family as the voice of the puppet initially, and then Walker Edmiston, who I don't quite know, but as the voice of overdubbing Clint Howard. Uh, just all three of the performances in concert, I think, are just so wonderful in just setting off at ease, just like setting things off kilter. So, yeah, I yeah, I, I want your thoughts. I just gave a lot of them, I realize, in a row, but... I lo- love everything about this character. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I think it's just I think it's well conceived, um, and kind of like you were saying, Andrew. Like if you compare it to the kind of stuff that was around in the mid sixties, there's just a degree of thought which has been put into this, which isn't immediately uh, apparent from kind of the sort of sci-fi that surrounded it. Particularly if you're talking about um, TV sci-fi, um, you're talking particularly in America. You're talking about Time Tunnel, you're talking about uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, you're talking about Lost in Space, all these sort of, I'm sorry if there are fans of those shows listening to this, but sort of fairly hacky TV shows, you know. Uh, <laughs> Lost in Space has unexpectedly had legs into the 21st century, but I don't think anybody's clamouring for a remake of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, uh, as far as I know. Um, and, you know, they're they're fine for what they are, but they're very simple straightforward adventure tales and whilst you can make a case that some of star trek falls into that again like the ambition of of having like that like that like it doesn't need to have the bluff of the puppet there's there's no need for that to be in the episode if it was just like a freaky looking kid on screen with a weird voice that's still effective that would still work as an you know it's not the most expensive uh you know alien that star trek would ever have seen but it would still be perfectly acceptable there's no actual story need for that bluff to be there but it works really effectively that it is it gives the episode somewhere else to go and that extra kind of layering is one of the things that does mark star trek out from its competition so um i have a question um is that to use your words freaky looking kid completely on his own you know so the small ship the big ship the um the the boy there must be other boys as well is that all him it's all him he's on his own who did his fillings then? Because when he laughs, he's <laughs> got fillings. Well, yeah. who, put his, who put his fillings in? Part of his alien biology. They have different teeth than us. They happen to look like fillings. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a convincing workaround. That works. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So um, I didn't. I didn't mind the puppet. Uh, you know. Um, yeah. But the, I, I suppose the, the, the problem I had with the, the Clint Howard thing was because when you know, so I had a look on Wikipedia to think about the episode, so, oh, yeah, Clint Howard's in it. OK, fair enough. I guess in, in my mind, I, I, um, I completely and utterly forgot that, of course, this was 66, 67. And of course, he is going to be about seven years old. So um, I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting a little kid, but that's my own stupidity. Um, I don't understand why he's going to blow them up because um, you know, it gives him 10 Earth timing units um, in which to do it. He's going to blow them up, um, but then he wants to know their true intentions because he, bluff, he bluffs them back. You see, that's what Kirk isn't sure about. Oh, is he bluffing? That's why Spock's left behind. So, you know, there's bluff and there's, there's you know, counter bluff. Um, but he wanted to kill them, and now he doesn't want to kill them. Uh, I just I'm not quite sure about that. Is it just suddenly because they seem to have outsmarted him that now he wants to get to know them? But he was lonely before. Am I taking this too seriously? Quite possibly. But I don't know. I, I just I just I'm about to say I found his motivation slightly odd. 
or at least at least maybe the the, the, mm. the twist after the 10 minute countdown has been done and he decides no i'm not going to blow them up that whole thing about um um oh yeah so it would be nice to have a chat with someone from your civilization just seems like an excuse to get rid of a very bad actor from the cast <laughs> well I, I think it's fair to say that um you're not wrong i think the thing that needs to be sort of clarified is whether he was really going to blow them up or not like kirk's bluff works and they fall back but the kind of assumption on that is is that's because you know kirk sold it really well and all the rest of it um but it's not that clear whether Belloc would actually have killed them or whether he just wanted to see how they were going to react or what was going to happen after that. So, yeah, that's that's definitely something that, that could have done with a, a degree of uh, elucidation. Although I will say, in uh, in defence of, of Star Trek, mm-hmm. um, the, um, the what I refer to um, as the Death Star, Belloc's Death Star, actually looks really impressive. So, oh, so, yeah? Yeah, you know, um, even close up, you know, I, I was really impressed by by that as a, um, you know, a mid-60s kind of sci-fi effect. Um, you know, less so everything else. I, I think his boy looks like an old logo for the Google store. But, um, you know, um, you know, I actually just thought, well, OK, there's, there's quite a bit of thought that goes goes into some of these things. So, you know, kudos. And I'm, I was quite pleased it didn't end up on a planet. I always sort of remember the, the planet episodes as being a, um, a little bit iffy. And it's not just the Galaxy Quest, mm-hmm. um, you know, revision um, of history, but, um, you know, it's a bit like Doctor Who. You know, there are certain planet types that they always end up on. Or I suppose mm-hmm. a bit like bloody Tatooine. Oh, look, there's another, <laughs> another Star Wars desert planet. Oh, really? Okay, fair enough. Um, you know, so, yeah, I... I I'm, I'm still struggling with the Balok thing a little bit. Um, I, I think it almost might have been better not to have shown him at all. But, um, you know, there is that sense of you sort of think, OK, so this little child is, has the ability to, to build all of that on his own. Isn't that fantastic? And it saves us a lot in extras. Yeah, I I think my, fa- my favorite moment Balok has that might reveal whether I think he was planning on blowing them up because he buys the Corbomite bluff like he's not like and there's a bit of a great acting from i believe it's ted cassidy at this point um where the countdown runs out and he kind of like stumbles a bit trying to correct and be like oh uh we'll let you board or it's, i can't remember the act i wish i wrote it down but he just has like a bit of a moment where he like is clearly changing his plans on the fly and is clearly like rattled by this bluff. And I find that just, it's very funny and it's very accurate and it just sort of brings a bit of humanity to this like situation. Yeah, I think so. And um, I mean, the whole, the whole thing with Balak and that massive ship is, is it, it is interesting to see our, our, crew kind of put in a situation where they are essentially powerless and again it's certainly in terms of um production but even in terms of broadcast like so early on in the show you know the the this idea that that actually if you're going to go out and explore space if you're going to do all this stuff like it is a big scary galaxy out there it's not all you know colonists and 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 yeoman bringing you coffee we'll, we'll get on to that um but you know it, th- there are things out there which we genuinely uh are not really prepared to cope with or understand even and it's nice to um it's 
nice to come across something which is so different, I suppose. This isn't just, you know, um, you know, Klingons as thinly veiled uh, Russians or, or, you know, whatever, Romulans as thinly veiled, uh, you know, Chinese. It, it's very... It's very unusual. The fact, I, even the fact that there's only one of them, I kind of like that. That's a nice twist. Now, whether that's whether that's purely a cost saving exercise or not, yeah, you can you can make your own mind up. But I, I think that's that's a nice that's a nice thing. It's it's a, it's such an unusual stance to take, and I think that's that's the thing throughout this script. Uh, Jerry Saul just keeps making choices, keep making decisions, which aren't just kind of like default and, and not even just default for sci-fi but just like drama defaults as well like the, you know a lot of the stuff with the, the 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 countdown running you can you can see kind of roots going back to kind of world war ii movies or like the incoming torpedo or and you know all that kind of stuff so it's it's not that this is entirely without precedent that would be that would be grossly overstating things but it it's put into a kind of sci-fi context or sci-fi conceit incredibly successfully and yeah just little things like that like there's one person that's that's such a small thing that isn't necessary again, but it makes it makes a difference. And that that sense of scope, that sense of world building is incredibly effective. All right, all the terminology hasn't quite been straightened out yet. So it's a United Earth ship, not the United Federation of Planets or Starfleet or any of that stuff. But but you know, in the in the things that actually matter, it's it's very good at kind of putting out this uh, this sense of a, a big universe that just doesn't contain the things that we think it's going to. Yeah, and I think it's just that, like, surprise that really elevates the story. It's always willing to just take it in a different direction and change gears in a way, I mean, not unlike the Take You Home 1, 2, 3, even though different writers involved. Um, just that constant shifting of what the stakes are and what the uh, what's going on. I just, yeah, it, it just plays so well. Even if, obviously, the best stuff is the countdown, and it kind of loses its way a bit after that, Slightly. I think the stumble is only slight. Um, I still think it's just so radical and fun for how it's willing to keep things fresh. Well, since we're on the subject of the countdown, um, over to you, Andrew. <laughs> <sighs> okay, right. So, um, yeah, it's it's a good dramatic device. Um, and I think Sulu's role in this is um, is quite an interesting one as well. There's lots of references mm. to, you know, to him and his ability to to keep time. Um, but I, 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 I'll just be nice and, and and not sort of rip through it too much because actually there's a couple of other things that I want to mention in relation to it. But when he does the 10 second countdown at the end, it takes him 15 seconds. That's that's kind of an example. So you know, despite the fact yeah. they managed to they managed to skip about two and a half minutes. The whole thing takes 11 minutes, 25. Um, I mean, I know that's being really, really picky, but, you know, they make a point of saying where it goes from oh, four minutes and then saying three minutes, despite the fact that it's a minute and a half between, you know, so there's that. Okay, so that's the problem with technology. It means I can be a dick and I can go back and I can I can stop it on Netflix and, and I can have a look. No one cares in, in you know, 1967 um, or even in 1982, quite frankly. You know, no one cares about that sort of thing. However, there, there are a few points in here. Um, and, you know, part of the way through, Bailey is, um, well, at very, his... Very diplomatically phrased. Um, how can we put it? most human you know he's i mean it's a 
it's a terrible bit of acting, but actually he's the only one that responds in any way, shape or form, <laughs> like most normal people would respond to being seven minutes, 45 seconds away from, um, <laughs> you know, you compare that to, to the shots when, um, you know, the corridor shots when everyone's been on battle stage, just ambling along quite nicely, having a conversation. And so they go into the cafe for their, their latte. Um, you know, no, there's no sense of urgency elsewhere. At least he has it. And that's kind of a redeeming feature, although bearing in mind he gets sent down um, and then I think it's what four minutes later he's back and everything's forgiven. As you know, he has seven minutes where he's, he's sent to have a good think about what he's done, but then he comes back and everything's forgiven. Um, but, you know, it, it's that kind of reaction that, that surprises me that, yeah, during that time, Yeoman Rand is making coffee and comes up with it at the end so that Kirk can potentially spill it when things get a bit weird again. Um, you know, and you have, um, oh, uh, forget the corridor, move on from the corridor. But, um, you know, I, I just think it's it's interesting how um, stoic everyone is, is presented as, and that's fine. I suppose they're professional, they're doing their job. But you just think, really, come on, let's, let's have a little bit more panic going on. Um, let's have a little bit more urgency, a bit more tension. I, I want people to be at each other's throats. I want them to to be falling apart so that Kirk can bring them back together again. But everyone's just too kind of underwritten at that point. It's almost as though, you know, then, and, and I think this is a problem with, with you know, a lot of films today as well. Um, you can look at the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. and see if you've got um, a scene where you're focusing on one or two people in the front. You know, battle scenes, for example, and you just see in the background there's a whole load of CGI of, of people just sort of throwing a few punches at each other, but nothing actually really happening. Or people just kind of wandering around talking and it just looks so wrong. You know, and I'm pretty sure at this point people would have had a vague idea that that, you know, if you're going to be falling around in the corridor, that the next time we cut back to you 30 seconds later, hopefully you'd have moved a little bit further along the corridor than you're seen to have done in this place. And I know I said I wasn't going to talk about corridors anymore, but, you know, I, I had to mention it. But, you know, I mean, it's it's fine. I, um, you know, it's it's a device. It, it gets us from from that point um, to to the next. In fact, it takes us through an advert break, doesn't it? Um, although you probably watched it on streaming, you can tell where the advert breaks come in when it jumps from seven minutes to four minutes, 30. It just seems mm-hmm. like that's sort of like the natural point. And I, and I think, again, we're watching it, you know, high definition. We're watching it in, um, you know, streaming without adverts. And you kind of lose some of the um, the momentum that they build up throughout um, with those sort of natural cliffhangers throughout an episode. If you can go mm-hmm. back and spot where they are, you can see, well, actually, there's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a three-act structure going on. Um, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to be nice. Can I can I just go edit mm-hmm. here? Edit. I, I I feel like I'm I'm sort of digging myself into a hole. And I'm no. to, um But um, I, I've got no out on this, so I need someone to come in and and jump and take over and give their opinion of the countdown. So I'm just rambling. I'll I'll jump in. No worries. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It's the countdown. You're right. It doesn't hold up to um literal scrutiny. It, it feels more like a parent coming in and saying ten nine eight and a half like it's just there's a little bit of fluidness to it it's more emotional and i think that's just like i don't know it's just part of the buy-in i guess it's you have 
if you take the stopwatch to it, like Sulu does, uh, you find Sulu's measurements quite off. It's it's much more about the writing rhythm than it is a literalness. And I can see how that literalness would throw us off. And like you said, the age of the internet, of nitpicking, of high definition, of no streaming advertisement breaks. But, but don't you want them to be a little bit more human? Aren't they, aren't they just yeah, a little I, bit too robotic? I'll get to that, I guess. But yeah, it's part of the countdown itself. I just find it interesting as part of the buy-in. As far as the characters' reactions, it is, yeah, I guess Bailey's kind of our baseline. I would like to see maybe one or two more of the crew get flapped, so to speak. But the unflappableness of Kirk, I find just so admirable. Maybe if he sweat a little bit more. But I feel like Shatner does a good job sweating a bit, actually. He has a sort of outburst at McCoy about bluffing, which sort of get, shows you it's getting under his skin. I think it's a good show from Shatner um, of, like, he's not outwardly breaking down. He's not outwardly having a panic attack because he has to keep it together for the crew. But inside, he is getting more and more tense, I think, as that scene goes on. I, I think he just sort of subsumes it in an interesting way. I was watching um, um, you know, Shatner's performance with interest because in my mind, that's just exactly what Bruce Willis um, mm-hmm. walked quite a lot of his early career on. It, it just seemed like it, that everything, the mannerisms, the way he talks, that sort of, oh, yeah. you know, the, the quiet turn of the head, that sort of, you know, arched eyebrow, the sort of quizzical surprise, you know, that's that's Bruce Willis's early acting career um, to an absolute T. I think Shatner does get a couple of very nice moments. So when he, when, um, there's one moment sort of early on when uh, Bailey misses one of his uh, orders and Kirk sort of turns to him, looks at him sternly and then has a little sort of, sort of smile to himself. Like he understands, like he gets why the, he was slightly delayed. This is sort of, I think, even before the countdown. Um, and it's, 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 there's a lot of those nice little beats from, from Shatner in this one. That moment where um, Spock almost says, I'm sorry, and then kind of pulls back and says, um, oh, I, I regret that I can't find another logical solution to this. And um, and it's what's interesting about it is like Kirk is quite harsh with Spock before that, kind of like asking for a solution. And um, even given that little moment of kind of almost vulnerability that Spock gives, Shatner still plays the following line as pretty strict. Uh, he doesn't get, he, you know, Spock doesn't get the kind of like little half smile that McCoy gets, um, you know, before they're all about to die and all is forgiven. He kind of like, he stays on point. Um, and and I, I'm guessing if you want to go for a, like a textual reason for that, it's because he's in command. He's, that isn't the moment to be, uh, you know, to be uh, allowing, you know, little personal moments to slip in or, or to let, let his guard drop. And if you want to take a sort of paratextual uh, sort of interpretation of it, it's just Shatner really understanding how to land that line. You know, he does a, he does a great job of not, you know, again, going for like something which could be a little bit more chummy or whatever, but he keeps his focus on, on that kind of degree of, of professionalism. And again, the, 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 other than kind of like the, the the like that lovely moment where he says like let him sweat for a bit, like Shatner doesn't get a lot of kind of big, kind of Shatnery moments in this, but but those little moments again they kind of show off how much better an actor he is or was, um, you know, as as against his reputation, they they really work for the character. Mm-hmm. And he got to take his shirt off as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go, yeah, talk talk about getting Shatner to sweat a bit. I mean, come on. I think we I think we've seen enough of that for one episode. Thank you very much. And and, and when he he came out of uh, of 
of that as well. And he, he was walking along, sorry, the corridor. Nobody seemed to pay any attention to the fact that he was sweaty and uh, and, and and topless. But but there you go. That's fine. I I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't think he's as good as um, um, uh, Nimoy and Forrest Kelly. That rings a bell. Um, but you know, he's. He's, he's pretty good. He is pretty good. And that, that sort of stoic, quiet kind of determination, um, you know, the, of the man charged with responsibility. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it, it's interesting. And I, I, I wonder, not that I'm going to, but whether then when you sort of revisit some of the later ones, whether it then kind of almost uh, delves into uh, the parody that perhaps it's then become uh, slightly more renowned for. Yeah, it's I just look at that shirtless scene of him not just like working out in front of McCoy, but then also walking through the ship shirtless. And like, it just really, moments like that bring home like, oh, this is the show that invented shipping and sexual fandom in the modern sense. <laughs> like, oh, it's like this. It's because of these moments like this. I don't know. It can't be intentional for like the 60s. but Maybe it is. I don't know. Roddenberry was a weird guy, but like having Shatner eye candy just like thrown in your face like that, you sort of see... Um, and then, like, almost a flirty moment with McCoy beforehand in that operating room. It's just, oh, yeah, this is where it all comes from. Even if it's not the classic Kirk-Spock moment that everyone drew from the show, it's still, it's just out there. I just have to point it out. No, no, you're quite right. A useless piece of information. Uh, Shatner had to shave his chest for that scene because <laughs> uh, Gene Roddenberry thought, because um, Shatner has a hairy chest, and, and Gene Roddenberry thought that uh, that wouldn't be what 23rd century men were like. <laughs> I, I don't really know what to make of that statement, but I felt it was worth mentioning. Um, speaking of um, speaking of um, sort of slightly odd sexual politics, um, I suppose we we have to mention we have to mention uh, Yeoman yeah. Rand, uh, eternal bringer of the coffee. Um, and like for so much of this episode, we've sort of been saying how good it's been to see you know uh, Jerry Saul make sort of uh, scripting decisions, which you know help to elevate it and make choices which are, uh, you know, going above and beyond what you would expect for kind of like a, you know, run-of-the-mill serialized TV show. All that stuff is true. Um, and then we get the scene where um, McCoy basically says to Kirk, oh, it's so hard not to sexually harass people you're attracted to, isn't it? Um, and, and the best defense Kirk has for it is, thank God I've fallen in love with a starship. It's not, it's not great. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I've already got a female to worry about. Her name is the Enterprise. If it wasn't such a sexist mm -hmm. line, it'd be such a great line, if that makes sense. It's a well. You can see the mechanics of it being such a well written, witty response. But <laughs> oh, Jesus, dude. I, let's not just focus on um, um, Yeoman uh, Rand, because um, of course there's you know Ahuru's uh, slightly reductionist role in this as well, and of course they've both got their. Their yeah. uber mini skirts, but um, yeah. yeah, there's 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 a um, there's actually a shot on the on the bridge um, um, after Yeoman Brand brings up the uh, um, the phasered coffee, where you know they have a um, a close up of um, of a Huru looking. You know, they've they've kind of gone around um, everyone on the bridge and he's looking kind of quizzical, and so after a Huru, they then go to Yeoman Rand and it's in soft focus and it is deliberately in soft focus. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if they had you. you so uh, JG, you'll be able to um, um, 
um, tell me um, whether or not they had uh, greater intentions for that character than than actually fleshed out. Um, so we have we have mentioned this in the podcast before, but it, it sort of bears repeating. Um, yes, is the answer to that question, and uh, the character of Janice Rand was meant to be sort of gradually developed uh, into a sort of a semi relationship with Kirk. Uh, it was decided that was a bad idea because Kirk was uh, meant to be kind of this stoic professional, and he would never, he would never end up falling for um, a female yeoman like that. I think that's probably also the origin of the line is I've already got a, you know woman to worry about. Her name is Enterprise. But again, this is where the the fact that we're watching things in in, in broadcast and not production order kind of trips us up because we've had like three or four episodes where where uh, Rand has been pretty well used and Grace Lee Whitney is a, a, like she's a good actor but she's just given nothing to do she has no character there's no real sense of her having any kind of internal life or anything else and and her exit from the show is unfortunately you know very sad um and for very bad reasons and and it's it's such a a waste of a character and waste of a very gifted actor quite apart from you know the the the, the unpleasantness around what happened to her in the way that she was treated um and this this kind of like this is the i mean in, te- in recording senses this is the first time we see rand and okay she's bringing captain a salad and, and bringing some coffee it's not great character development but uh, in theory this ought to be her first time out the same is also true for uhura as well she does just sit at the back and say healing frequencies open um but we've seen sir, uh, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, sir. <laughs> uh, but we've seen her do more up till this point but this is her first outing and it, honestly Michelle Nichols is really good at this like she finds yeah she finds different ways to deliver that line like the first two or three times she delivers it she's kind of weary and she the, like the character sounds a bit kind of fed up yeah yeah healing frequencies open sir what what do you think I was gonna do um and then like as as the episode gets tenser or as it sort of progresses she she tightens up she 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 sits up she pays more attention like she finds a way of delivering basically the same line a dozen times and and finds an interesting kind of way to do it every time that's pretty good for an ancillary actor who's stuck at the back given very little to do but for for um for poor old Janice Rand this is it I don't think we're going to see her again and and that's the last thing she she gets to do is um zap hot coffee <laughs> it's it's not great at all <laughs> and if you'll you know it, it, it's 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 a it's a really uh, sad ending for the character and it's it's a it's definitely was very sad for for Grace Lee Whitney as an actor so it's uh yes yeah, so it's it's not good all round yeah, I think we might get one more brief appearance. I'm oh, I think up. she gets one other scene, right? I think that's it. Conscience yeah, of a King. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but yes, uh, I just pulled up on Memory Alpha. But I think back to Michelle Nichols, she gets one of my favorite moments, just a background physical performance moment when we cut to them 18 hours into this discussion of what to do with the cube early on. And she just looks bored and like a great sweeping shot of the conference room like that pans around the table. And she just looks bored out of her mind, head in her hands, just like, <laughs> are they done yet? It's just a wonderful like little moment from her. And I think, yeah, it's like she has to work with very little. And that's unfortunate for sure. But she works with it. It's yeah, it's, it shows what a what a great performer she was, what a loss it's been for her not to be around anymore. It's uh yeah. I, you definitely see how this character left an impact with just, uh, even when she has very little to do, she makes the most out of it. So is she a department head? 
because there was a point not uh, long before that um, when you know Kirk and McCoy are doing their sweaty workout thing. I'm pretty sure where um, Kirk asks all the department heads to meet him on the bridge, but then the only people that arrive, other than the people that are already there, are Scotty and and McCoy. But Uhuru is then in the boardroom. Is she a department head? Uh, so the answer to that question is yes, but I mean Spock was also there as well, and he's he's also a department head too. So yeah, she she she's 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 head of communications. So uh, yeah, she's she's a department head. It's 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 something that again could have borne a little bit more clarification, but but yes. Okay, I was I was just wondering because I mean it seems like an opportunity to to broaden things out, and of course then you're thinking who else is there? So um, now I'm wondering about who her deputy is and. Uh, um, you know what kind of line management role she uh, she offers. I'm, I'm sure she does extremely good quarterly evaluations, and she has a good structured plan for her team going forward. We have seen other we have seen other people sitting at communications, so there is actually a sense that there are more people on the ship. Uh, you know that there are shifts and stuff like that. But is that why they're shaking things out and working out what works and what doesn't? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think Nichelle Nichols was locked in at this point, um, so she was she was going to be a recurring character. But there are a small set of kind of background actors who do kind of drop in and drop out. Um, Bailey was never going to be an ongoing character; he was always a one and done for this one. Um, but like we've seen Sulu in a couple of different roles, um, away from the helm, and we've seen other bits and pieces. So, so yes, and and it's also, I mean, it's a shame in a way because uh, that uh, sorry, it's a shame that you know that the the fact that Uhura's, uh, you know, like a department head and all that kind of stuff isn't leaned on a bit more heavily because it would get away from all those kind of very reductionist things about, oh, well, you know, they, they just made the woman the secretary, which is not at all true. But if you don't bother to engage with the material, it's not hard to understand why people ended up kind of thinking that. Um, and it's not it's it's not true you know like she's she's a consummate professional she's on the same level as as scotty and mccoy and all the rest of it if if she doesn't get as much character development that says more about you know racial politics in the 1960s than it does about you know nichelle nichols or her, her ability as an actor uh, but that's that's you know that's what she is and I, I i don't know i i just i love her role in this uh kind of more than even sort of um sulu and and when he turns up Chekhov as well i just i i find her a very magnetic presence i find her very difficult not to watch and she does do great job of of yeah like that kind of background acting she's never off so we're saying that um it's all down to a lack of organization chart made available <laughs> that, that we don't understand i don't i I don't think twenty third century PowerPoint is all it's cracked no, up to be. That's the, I'll just no. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry. Can I can I just ask? We sort of seem to be um, um, diving around ever so slightly at the moment. Um, I, I have a question. I mean, actually, can I can I just follow up on that? When does Chekhov uh, come into it? Is it next episode or? No, second season. He's not in the first season at all, and then he's in the second and third. Okay, so what happens to um, you know Bailey's seat then uh, from here on? Uh, a rotating cast of one and done. Oh, okay, okay. So is it a doomed? We're all doomed. Kind <laughs> of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it 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 it's a bit of a hot seat until Chekhov turns off. I just want to point out that don't forget the Irish guy who is there for one seat. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying really hard, though. <laughs> is it a genuine uh, Irish guy, or is it uh, an uh, accent that, to be proud of? He's he's every bit as genuinely Irish as the three of us. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Um, I I mean, I just wanted to, to to check something that seemed a bit odd to me. When when they go to the transporter room, um, 
it looks like um, um, Bailey and Kirk have a waistband that they put on. Did you see that? Yes. But, yeah, yeah. They what do. is that? It's a waistband they put on. Okay, because... <laughs> it gives them something to stick their phasers to and their communicators. Ah, I, I, no memory of that. Yeah, normally, normally it's kind of tucked under the shirts rather than over the shirts. But again, it's that early production thing where they haven't quite managed to iron out all the details. Like Uhura's in a yellow uniform this time. Every other time we see her, she'll be in red. There's just those little bits and pieces which just aren't okay. quite settled in yet. So so that's all. I okay, mean. fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, I, I'm sort of approaching it from the point of view of I've not watched one of these for uh, many, many years. I don't know, did we ever watch any at, at college? I can't remember. Um, uh, so probably wouldn't have had so, much choice, but... <laughs> um, so there were just sort of things that look at you just go, ooh, not really sure about that. Um, and so it's like I get intrigued by um, so sort of sci-fi in general, of course, this notion of windows on, on spaceships. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that 23rd century and they have um a screen that they look at where you can look straight ahead and five degrees either side and and that's it come on guys what's going on here <laughs> and you know, but then you know there are people that say that actually um those those sorts of things are pretty useless when it comes to spaceships as well i don't know not an expert i don't know if you can believe this i've never been to space so I don't know mm-hmm. what the answer is, but I, ju- I just find it vaguely humorous that, that effectively they can only look straight ahead of the ship. That anything that comes to them from the side, they're not going to be able to see. I think it's probably something which comes from like the naval tradition. I mean, that's that's yeah. the whole thing. So much about the way that um, Star Trek puts space battles across is, uh, you know, it's naval. And that's what you have in the front of a ship. So that's what you have in the front of a spaceship. I, I doubt very much there's any more thought that's gone into it uh, than that. Like you mentioned Wrath of Khan earlier on, Andrew. They make such a song and yeah. dance about the fact that everything's in 3D suddenly. So it's not just two ships of the line sitting opposite each other outside a harbour anymore. And that's, you know, that's basically how every space battle is treated in Star Trek at this point. Which is fair enough. That's also, yeah. that's both what their history would be. And also that's probably the best the special effects could manage. So, you know... I mean, I, th- I think if I was perhaps going into it a little bit more deeply, I could say that means that we see everything through their eyes and we're also kind of looking over their shoulders and everything they see, sure. we see and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, so, I, I mean, I can see that, that there would be some sort of justification for it. Um, just I think, you know, it's that narrowness of it um, that I think is quite interesting. Bear in mind that space is this, you know, infinite, um, infinite space, if you like, and, and we can only see just a little tiny bit of it at a time. And, and I think... You know, you might get that sense of just how small we are um, in comparison um, if, if they don't open it up a bit. But again, you know, 1966, 1967, what am I expecting? I mean, Doctor Who, they didn't even put any, mm-hmm. any on, did they? Yeah. <laughs> got periscope. I'll tell you something. Uh, you mentioned the direction before, but that all those sweeping shots, you definitely wouldn't have got that in in, uh, in a Patrick Troughton story, which is roughly where we would be at now. So, uh, no, yeah. although I... Um, around that time, what you are getting are the the Peter Cushing films, which is quite interesting. They're they're sort of quite contemporaneous with um, with this episode. I think that uh, drifting off in the different little tangents here and there is, is a sign that it's time to wrap it up. Uh, let's start with episode ratings. Um, I know Andrew, you said off mic that you're still working out your number here. So JG, why don't you give us our baseline? Okay, I'm gonna give this. 
I'm going to give this, oh, it's either going to be eight and a half or nine. Uh, I think I'll go for eight and a half. Yeah, it's a great little story. I do feel it loses a little bit of momentum. Um, Bailey's acting is variable at best. Um, but I think it's a really well-constructed script. It's tight, it's interesting, and I like the fact that the resolution doesn't depend on, on hand-waving or technology, but it's actually shows somebody being smart. So, yeah, I'm going to go for eight and a half. All right. Since I don't believe in half points, and I believe we have solidarity on that, Andrew, yep. I am going straight for nine. I think, I mean, the flaws are the flaws. I agree with them. That's just keeping it from a 10. But <laughs> everything that works so well works so well. And, yeah, there are just sequences in this and twists in this and elements of this that are just, like, nothing I've seen on TV today. It's it's wonderful. I loved this episode. Well, I, I don't have much of a frame of reference, so um, all I've really got are, um, uh, well, actually is, uh, let's go with The Wrath of Khan, and there's no Ricardo Montalban, which uh, which is a bit mm. of an issue. Um, Clint Howard is no Ricardo Montalban, um, and uh, so therefore, and there's, there's there's no sort of nasty things going into people's ears as well, so I miss that. Um, it's, it's fine, it's fun. Um, you know, if I'm taking Wrath of Khan as a 10, then I'll give this a, a fairly generous seven on the basis that, you know what, it's it's not my thing, but I didn't hate it. It, it was it was perfectly fine for about the first 35 or 40 minutes until Clint Howard came along. <laughs> Fair enough. I think we can uh, I think we can probably, uh, yeah, come to an end of our discussion of the episode then and move on to recommendations. Um, Kev, why don't you go first this week? What have you got for us? I recently watched a 70s film for the first time that I, I'm sure many people have heard of, but if you haven't, then I need to just spread the word. It's Peter Bogdanovich's What's Up, Doc. It is one of the most delightful romantic comedies in part. It stars, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on it. Ryan O'Neill. I almost said Peter O'Toole, and that is the wrong O. Um, Ryan O'Neill as the most doofiest, lamest man on the planet just this i mean clearly channeling that sort of bringing up baby a male lead style of person of just a big old dork in glasses but just cranked up to the extreme he's married to madeline khan points who's also giving an amazing performance just i mean it's a madeline khan performance i don't think i need to elaborate further but he runs in the barbara streisand as this chaotic woman who doesn't have a name for most of the movie who's just seems hellbent on ruining his life until he falls in love with her. It's a very simple premise, but with a lot of farce complications. There's also four identical bags that get switched around, so two of which contain, uh, one of which contains government secrets, one of which contains jewels, the other two contain mundane items that uh, confuse everyone trying to go after the other bags. So there's this whole ensemble cast of people like scheming and switching and trying to get one up on other people. But you really... It's the romantic triangle at the center between these three hilarious people that draws you to it. And it ends with an insane car chase that is better than any I've seen in any Mission Impossible or Fast and Furious movie. It's just such a wonderful, hilarious film. What's up, Doc, uh, from the year 1972? Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, Andrew, what have you got for us? Right. OK, bear with me, because um, I'm going to uh, make some callbacks. I mentioned uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, and whilst I think the films are dropping off in quality, I actually think the TV programs are getting better and better and better, mostly as they start to focus on people other than, you know, white 
males mostly so um <laughs> i've really been enjoying um um she hulk um and and in particular because it reminds me of here's another callback moonlighting I don't know if you remember, um, you know, Bruce Willis in early heyday, yeah. before he became film star, Bruce Willis, Civil Shepherd, um, and the way in that TV programme, it's just played with the form. Um, and it was really knowing and and very cleverly written. And and I'm finding a lot of echoes of, um, of Moonlighting in She-Hulk, and it really works for me. I know the CGI is rubbish. I know there's not much of a superhero element to it, but I'm, I'm just having really good fun with with a show that is is being a little bit braver than than a lot of the marvel films are at the moment i'll let you go first jg <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah i mean i don't think braver than the marvel films are at the moment is a high bar right. in fact i would i would suggest that's a pretty low bar at the moment um i don't disagree we've actually discussed she-hulk before um i think i like it a bit better than than um kev does um and i i i I hadn't considered the moonlighting comparison before, but that's actually a really good point. Yeah, I can I can see where it's going, and particularly the knockabout kind of screwbally elements as well. Yeah. Um, they're they're very very similar. So um, I have sympathy without um, without being in complete agreement. Um, I think there are some things which could be handled a little bit better in it, but overall, I'm I'm generally enjoying it, and I'm I'm far far more invested in a show which will take a swing even if the swing doesn't necessarily always manage to be a big hit. Whereas most of the MCU TV shows have just been so kind of formulaic and even, even Moon Knight, which ought to have been like a a Mm. dead sir. I found it very difficult Mm -hmm. to care that much about it. I just couldn't get invested in it. Um, And that's ridiculous. Oscar Isaac, he's like one of the most charismatic human beings there's ever been. How can he not be watchable in this show? And yet I actually think it's, 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 nice that for once the stakes are really low you know we're, we're i definitely yeah, agree with that, we're, yeah we're not saving the world um well yeah hopefully we're not um and you know I'm, I'm also enjoying tim roth being really quite kooky um you know in a quite an unusual tim roth um performance so i i just think it's 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 a bit different it's it's a lot fresher than a lot of the stuff that that they've been trying to pass off quite recently so um yeah kudos from me and and you know if, if lots of people don't agree that's fine I, you know i'm, I'm secure yeah. <laughs> over to you kev yeah I have, it's weird. maybe in the minority opinion of this i have the exact opposite reaction to this i don't know phase four from 2021 on mcu where i found i've liked the movies sans thor which is crap but every other movie i've at least liked or found something interesting in. And every TV show, sans Loki, which I think was awesome, I, every TV show, other TV show I have not hit for me. It's missed in somewhere or the other, or let me down in somewhere or the other. So I find that, I don't know. Um, She-Hulk specifically I, has, until this most recent episode, when we're recording, they just aired the seventh episode of the season where She-Hulk hangs out on Tim Roth's little estate. And that one worked really well for me. I really loved Roth's performance. Mm. And I think that one had like, jokes i found funny whereas the other episodes did not i don't know why i was i'm not laughing so far but uh it's a subjective thing i guess yeah humor Absolutely. i don't know but yeah um i wish i enjoyed shield more than i did it definitely i like that it's low stakes i think in ambition i'd rather have more she hulks in the world than moon knights or ms marvels that sort of punt on their story halfway in and can't figure out what they're doing 
a Moon Knight it was a great idea because they switching the stories gave it more life, but Ms. Marvel ruined something that seemed really good. I just think this whole six episode event series format is very bad for these kinds of stories. And it's heartening also recent after this recording to hear that they're they had a series lineup for Don Cheadle and they're like, uh, oh, it's a film instead now. And oh great, do that for the rest of them, please. <laughs> um I am tired of these sort of six episode weekly things. If you're not gonna uh, the the Daredevil one they announced, it's gonna be I think like fifteen or eighteen something episodes. That's that's the right direction. If you're not gonna commit to that much, you shouldn't be trying it. Or Andor, which recently started, and I mean we'll probably talk about it in a future recommendation segment. It's incredible. And that being a twelve episode series so it's time to spread its wings, I think that is working really well for that. So yeah, I just think it's a format thing for me, and a She-Hulk specifically, it's a sense of humor thing. Uh, yeah, it's I, I wish I could enjoy it. I'm glad you do. Uh, well, uh, just to sort of slightly follow up on that, Kev, you say we might be talking about Andor in a recommendation segment in a later episode. Actually, we're going to be talking about it in this episode. Yeah, there we go. Because I'm a smooth and seamless link as the professionals you would expect us to be. Um, we can come back to MCU in, in, in a minute, but I just I, that was too good a link to be able to pass up, so I had to dive in there. Um, I'm really digging Andor. I think it's absolutely great. Um, I'm so pleased not to be on Tatooine. That's, <laughs> that's uh, the most important thing to say about it. Um, and it's just so nice to see, like, I feel like this is kind of what the Star Wars TV shows should always have been, mm-hmm. which is, you know, digging into like the corners of the galaxy that we don't see very often. I really enjoy the Mandalorian. I think Mandalorian is great. Um, but it's one, it's a show that so it wears its influence so much on its sleeve. And I don't mind that, you know, it's all Sergio Leone and whatever and spaghetti Westerns and it's, it's great for what it is. Um, but it's 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 very kind of genre defined. Um, it's not that Andor isn't that, but it's kind of like Star Wars's Blade Runner is kind of an interesting approach to take to it, and I think so much of the production kind of owes itself to that kind of Blade Runnery feel. It's very dark everywhere. It's raining. Um, we don't have the kind of usual sort of bombastic uh, John Williams esque score. Instead, we have these kind of sweeping sort of ambient scores, which are much more kind of reminiscent of Vangelis it's it's a really interesting kind of approach to it I don't love the flashbacks if I'm being honest that's never my favorite structure I I, I just just tell you story already um, but everybody in it is great uh, Diego Luna is phenomenal of course it's just one of those um, it's one of those series that the more I get into it the more I want to get into it. And like, yeah, we're, we're only a few episodes in at this point, so maybe it'll all go cat- catastrophically wrong, and I'll update this in a, in a future episode where I apologize profusely for having ever sort of mentioned the name. But I don't think so. Um, it seems to be going really well, and I, I just, I think it's just, yeah, it just feels like it's doing all the things that Star Wars TV shows should have been doing from the word go. The, uh, the fact that this is out there, and we had to slog through that, very very mediocre obi-wan show like bless you and mcgregor he did his best it's not but but like the prequels it's not his fault he's been landed with incredibly substandard material again um and yet we get a show like this where suddenly everything seems to click it all comes together um and i I just hope that it's able to maintain the standard of the first few episodes but but so far i'm absolutely loving it so that's that's my recommendation this week is andor yeah and 
no disrespect to every other actor on that show or every other actor in Star Wars, period. But I think Stellan Skarsgård on Andor is eating everyone's lunch right now. He is just absolutely destroying that show. He's just completely... Oh, I, should, I should have mentioned Stellan Skarsgård. He's so great, isn't he? He's amazing. Like, he's only been in, like, two and a half <laughs> episodes, and he's, like, just taking control. Every time he's on screen, I am just hypnotized. It's just... And uh, he's so good that I. it took me a second... like. Someone had to point out later that he's also the antiques dealer on Coruscant. It's like, oh, this is a nude guy who's also popping really hard. But it's just like the hair. Obviously, it's just like the hair and the costume is different. And I totally blanked that you saw him change costumes earlier on. <laughs> but also, <laughs> it's the um, he holds himself so differently. He's giving two wildly different performances. And uh, he's so good. Like, whenever he monologues about how dangerous it is or how careful they all have to be, I just have chills. He's incredible. Yeah, hard agree, hard agree. Um, but it's just it's like there's there's nobody bad in this. Like even yeah. even the most minor kind of actors are, are really actually inhabiting it. And again, when I when I think back to yeah, like like the Obi Wan stuff, where it's just mm -hmm. like it's just the only reason there is anything to care in that show is because you're invested in that as a sort of legacy character. It it's, it it tries, and the acting is all right. Uh, other than you, McGregor, who's who's fantastic, but it's just it it never coheres into anything. Whereas just right from the first frame of Andor, it's together. Everything is pulling in the same direction, and what a difference it makes! I mean, it's just the obvious thing. You take Star Wars back to the UK, you build massive sets that are fully built, and you use matte paintings. You hire a bunch of classically trained actors to be stiff upper lipped Imperials, and suddenly everything's clicking again. It works. It's <laughs> that's Star Wars. If, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um... I, I admit, I, I got through about half of the first episode and I, I had a big kind of so what feeling about it. Um, I think we're kind of sort of in the same area. And, and I just think it'd be nice to, to see them do something a little bit different. I quite like, um, you know, Rogue One. Let's, let's take that as an example, because it felt like there was something different in terms of the lead. Um, I, I, I love Rogue yeah. One for whatever it's worth. I think it's a brilliant film. It's the only Star Wars movie I own in, on Blu-ray. Okay. Um, I, I, I just wish that, that perhaps we were looking at something a little bit more out of the box. You know, I, I just got the feeling it's another kind of moody character who'd, who'd been done wrong, man, and, oh, got to take my revenge. Um, and I just think, have we had, we had that enough by now? Haven't we? I'm, Maybe. I'm, I'm going to say the words that every regular TV watcher dreads. Uh, give it three episodes. <laughs> just, yeah, um, the third episode, it sort of concludes a mini story arc. And if you're not hooked by then and the huge action scene that happens in that third episode, you're not going to be hooked. That's fine. Everyone yeah. has different opinions. I, I, th I think that's, that's probably why um, I buy into... Um, I mean, not that I'm saying it's not why you don't, but it's saying that that's why I buy into, you know, Miss Marvel and and She-Hulk perhaps a little bit more quickly because I, I I just think we've had enough of um, I, I think I've had enough of of the heroes who look at okay this is going to say uh, metaphorically not literally I'm not comparing myself to Diego Luna who, who look a bit like me 
you know, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm just thinking, right, we've, we've done this story to, to death now, haven't we? And, and, and I know we, we obviously we had Ray within the Star Wars films, but you know, look at the reaction that got um, from the, the so-called fans. Um, I just think Star Wars is just really boring and conservative now, which is a shame because it was the mm. thing when I was about five or six that was just so different from absolutely everything else. So. I mean, that makes total sense to me. Yeah, I I definitely think Andor is doing what Star Wars does well, but it is, yeah, it's a very small C conservative show. I can't disagree with that. And I mean, the title on its own, and or, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think maybe that's a good place for us to be able to, to uh, wrap things up uh, there. Um, Andrew, do you have anything that you want to plug? Um, no, but I suppose I guess I should mention Beatles stuffology. Um <laughs> We're working, working our way through with the Beatles, um, and we've really got onto the hard slog that is side two. So, yes, that's fun. Join us. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you for, to talk about th- corridors. Thank you. Thank you for selling that so incredibly effectively. <laughs> All right. And I'll just roll into our standard plugs. You can find us on Twitter at Talk Trek to You. I am on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R, and a frequently guest on the podcast Will Massacre, Rowan Kaiser's podcast about action movies. JG's writings are at www.jgmcquarrie.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us this week, Andrew. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a blast. That's all we need to hear. <laughs> and for now, we can wrap things up there. Next week, we are going to be covering not one, but two episodes. So we are going to be covering the two-parter, The Menagerie. Oh, fun. And that, of course, means that we'll have to have a bit of a discussion about The Cage as well. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Keep talking.